A'udhu Billah Minash Shaitan Al-Ain Al-Rajim Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad ajil farajahum Brothers, sisters, respected viewers Assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and thank you for joining us once again in our life the Islamic Answer series in which we're trying to extract the principles of living Islamically in today's complex world. As you will remember, we were in the theme of knowledge and intellect in Islam in general, and we had reached the point where we were seeing what the Islamic teachings were concerning the traits, the characteristics, the descriptors of the scholar, of the person who carries knowledge in Islam. And again, as a reminder, as important as it is to choose the right scholar and the right teacher, and so we need the characteristics to look for in order to identify these people, we're also doing this to understand that when we acquire knowledge, the moment you acquire any dose of knowledge, even if it may not be a lot, even if you compare yourself to others and you see that they have seeked, they have sought, and they have secured a lot more knowledge than you, the moment you carry a little bit of knowledge, this knowledge is going to come with a responsibility. And therefore, when we talk about the characteristics of the scholar, there is no such thing as a, an absolute scholar. For us normal people, a scholar simply means someone who carries a certain amount of knowledge. Even if you carry a little bit of knowledge, you are a scholar to the extent of that knowledge, even if it may not be a lot. So you are now a alim, as in you are a knower. You are knowledgeable about certain things. Of course, you may know a lot more, and there is no end to how much you can know about a topic, but the moment you start carrying knowledge, then you are in that category, in those things that you know, you are in the category of the scholar. And we're talking about this because one, we want to identify the scholar so that we choose them. We choose carefully who we take our religion from, our teachings from. One. Two, we want to make sure that we are becoming these people that these characteristics start to show in ourselves, in our actions, and in the manner in which we carry ourselves. So we're not going to go over everything that we have covered until now. Inshallah, it's clear. We are doing recaps quite regularly. So inshallah, today we can just jump into the topic where we left off. So we were talking about the specific characteristics of the scholar or the teacher that have to do with fear of God and spirituality, to have taqwa and to have khushu'ah. If you will remember a lot of the verses of the Qur'an and uh, even more uh, explicitly all of the ahadith that we went through discussing this theme. So inshallah, we're trying to wrap it up quickly and move on to the, not necessarily move on, but build upon this with the next traits. So what we're trying to do is that while we understand a lot of the themes, a lot of the topics that we have covered in a different way until now, we're doing very quick recaps of the scholar being the person that 
has a fear of God, their knowledge leads them to a fear of God, and this is the main criteria. This is how we know that this is the beneficial knowledge, the Islamic knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants us to have. And therefore this shows in their actions. All of this also has a social dimension. And this is what we're going towards. So the moment you start carrying knowledge, this knowledge means that you also understand that now your place, your position in the community, in a society has now changed. The moment you start carrying knowledge, and this is what we're going to start seeing, inshallah, in the ahadith today. So as important as it is that your knowledge makes you fear God, you have to also understand that you fear God because you carry knowledge for yourself, and also because you have a social responsibility to fear God because of that knowledge. Not just for yourself. Not just for yourself do you have to act according to the knowledge. Of course, once you carry knowledge, you have to act according to that knowledge for yourself. That's one layer. That's everyone. But the moment you start becoming the scholar, you start becoming the person who has the knowledge, you also have to act based on that knowledge for others. If people start knowing that you carry an amount of knowledge, they have a certain expectation. They have a certain image. And even if they don't, you have to show them with that knowledge what that means practically in your actions, in your sincerity, in how you conduct yourself. You have a responsibility towards that knowledge for yourself and towards others. And this is what we're going to start seeing today in the ahadith. So the first, maybe we haven't spent a lot of time lately on the verses of the Qur'an, so I thought today we would start with the, a couple of verses from the Qur'an regarding this theme of fearing God. And you will see here the focus is a little bit more about the individual. And then we'll start moving towards the social dimension, that we have a responsibility towards others as well when we start carrying the knowledge. So the verses that have to do with the individual responsibility. In Surah Fatr, so this is chapter 35 in the Holy Qur'an, this is the famous verse, and we're not going to spend too much time commenting on it, it's simply a reference to a hadith that Imam Sadiq gives us in Surah Fatr, verse 28. So, chapter 35, verse 28. The verse is, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهِ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ This is actually not even a full verse, it is a part of a verse. So, here, and I don't have time to go through where this verse happens there are things that the verses mention before and after. And the proper way to do a tafsir in a lot of cases is to see what was the Holy Quran talking about that it says this statement here. Right? So in this case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has just spent a couple of verses explaining some of his miracles, some of his signs. Okay, he says that there are things in nature, there are mountains, for instance, when you look at them, they are of different colors reflecting a different reality and a different nature. And then the Qur'an suddenly skips. We don't have time to think about this more now, but we can think about it later. Why does the Holy Qur'an say there are things of different colors in nature? Most likely because they're made up of different things, but they're still the same, such as mountains. And then he says, and when you look at people, you also see that they come in different colors. And then the Qur'an says, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهِ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْعُلَمَاءِ of all of the servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is only those 
who carry knowledge, who will fear him. And so this is a verse that we referred to last week when Imam Sadiq was explaining who is the true scholar. You'll remember he was telling some of his companions, even if this person is able to split the hair in terms of accuracy in the most difficult of the problems of science, if this person has no fear of God, then this person is not a scholar. And he used this verse of the Qur'an to justify what he was saying. Okay, so here we have another hadith from Imam al-Sadiq specifically about this verse. Okay, we have a lot of hadith related to this verse. So the, again, the verse says, or this part of the verse says, only those among God's servants who are knowledgeable, only those among God's servants who are scholars, fear Him. And God is mighty and forgiving. And so this hadith from Imam Sadiq about this verse in one of the times when he was asked, what does this verse mean? He said, يَعْنِي مَنْ صَدَّقَ فِعْلُهُ قَوْلَهُ وَمَنْ لَمْ يُصَدِّقْ فِعْلُهُ قَوْلَهُ فَلَيْسَ بِعَالِمُ So the Imam explained, who is the alim? In a lot of cases, we think it's the person who carries the more data, the more information, the more knowledge. Imam Sadiq says, the alim is the person whose actions match their words. And as for the person whose actions do not match their words, this is not a alim, this is not a scholar. Okay, so this is a, dif- a different definition of who a scholar is. So this is the first uh, narration. The second one has to do with other verses of the Holy Quran in Surah Al-Isra. And again, these verses we could spend a very long time on, but the point is not to go through the verses. It's really to make the link. We're saying one of the characteristics of the scholar is someone who fears God. So we just saw one Qur'anic reference to this. Let's look at another one. In Surah Al-Isra, so this is chapter 17 of the Qur'an, verses 107 to 109. The Holy Qur'an says, read it in Arabic and then we'll say it in English. قُلْ آمِنُوا بِهِ أَوْ لَا تُؤْمِنُوا إِنَّ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْعِلْمَ مَنْ قَبْلِهِ إِذَا يُتْلَى عَلَيْهِمْ يَخِرُّونَ لِلْأَذْقَانِ سُجَّدًا وَيَقُولُونَ سُبْحَانَ رَبِّنَا إِنْ كَانَ وَعْدُ رَبِّنَا لَمَفْعُولًا وَيَخِرُّونَ لِلْأَذْقَانِ يَبْكُونَ وَيَزِيدُهُمْ خُشُوعًا So in English, rough translation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Holy Prophet, say, believe in it or believe not, or don't believe in it. In what? In the Holy Qur'an, in the Revelation. Believe in it or don't believe. Surely, those who were given knowledge before it, so those who were given knowledge before the Holy Qur'an was revealed to you, when it is recited to them, they fall down on their faces, prostrating, performing sujood. And they say, glory be to our Lord. The promise of our Lord is indeed true. And they fall down on their faces, crying, and it increases them in humility. Humility before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It increases their khushu'ah. These are three quick verses towards the end of Surah Al-Isra. We could spend a long time on these, but just the highlights. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here, He's saying there are people who had received some knowledge before you. 
before the revelation of the Holy Quran, they had received some knowledge. Who is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talking about? He doesn't refer to them here, but the Arabs understood. The specific reference is to the Jews and the Christians who had received the knowledge as in the revelation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the things that he had revealed before the Quran. When they hear the verses of the Holy Quran, what happens to them? The Holy Quran says that they fall to their faces performing sujood. And there's a, already a reference here. The Holy Quran could have just said, and they perform sujood. No, the Holy Quran says, يَخِرُّونَ لِلْأَذْقَانِ الذقن is the side of the face. Okay, the Holy Quran says, they fall to their faces. Almost like it's something automatic, unintentional. It just happens when they hear the verses of the Quran, because they carry true knowledge, because they know the knowledge that was in the Torah, in the Injil, in the previous revelations, when they hear the verses of the Quran, it's almost like today we would say, you faint. They lose consciousness. Doing what? Doing a sujood. So, so that you imagine their state, the Holy Quran doesn't say they simply perform a sujood, like you and I would perform a very controlled sujood. The Holy Quran says they fall down to their faces, performing the sujood, and then the next verse says, وَيَقُولُونَ سُبْحَانَ رَبِّنَا And they, first they say, سُبْحَانَ رَبِّنَا Glory be to our Lord. إِنْ كَانَ وَعْدُ رَبِّنَا لَمَفْعُولًا Truly, the promise of our Lord comes true. And here we can spend a long time too. This verse is combining the three main pillars of our faith, of our worldview. When they say, Glory be to our Lord, that's, that's Tawheed. When they say the promise of our Lord, that contains all the promises. That contains the afterlife, that's the promise of Allah. And that contains revelation, that's the nubuwa. You have ma'ad and nubuwa and tawheed in one part. Why? Because they heard verses from the Quran. They saw a sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, keep that in mind. And then the Quran comes back. It already said, just one verse before, it already said what happens to them. No, the Holy Quran comes back once more and it says, وَيَخِرُّونَ لِلْأَذْقَانِ يَبْكُونَ وَيَزِيدُهُمْ خُشُوعًا And they fall to their faces performing the sujood while weeping, crying, and this only increases them in even more khushu', in even more humility towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. Why are we talking about this? The whole story here from these verses of the Qur'an is about people who had knowledge. So already here, first of all, you see that those who truly believe are those who have true knowledge, which is the opposite of a lot of what we hear in today's world. Right? In today's world, it's often claimed that the more you have knowledge, the more you have intellect, the more you have rationality, the further away you're going to be from belief, the further away you're going to be from religion, because you have a rational mind, because you have a scientific mind. The Holy Quran here says, those people, the more knowledge they had, the more believer they become. It's the opposite of what we hear today. That's the first. So the idea that Knowledge leads to disbelief. Knowledge leads to atheism. 
knowledge leads to believing in science and only science and nothing else, this verse is directly contradicting it. This knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about leads to faith. True knowledge leads to faith. True knowledge leads to belief. That's one. Two, true knowledge leads to guidance. True knowledge cannot be something that makes you stubborn. These people are able to see truth. There's a lot of things that are thrown our way in this world. Everything is claimed to be true. These people are already able to distinguish between this is true, this is guidance. It's like they have an internal light. This knowledge that they have makes them able to see that this is true knowledge and they react to it. Okay, so this light has an ability to make you see the true signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talking about this? At that time, the way this applies is that these were the mushrikeen of Quraysh, the pagans, the idol worshippers, those who wanted to reject the Holy Quran with all sorts of reasons. But the Arabs generally, they respected the Jews and the Christians. They would go to see, see them for all of their big decisions. They would seek their, their advice and their counsel because they considered them to be very educated. They spoke more languages. They could read and write. So the Arabs in general, the non-Jews and non-Christians, would go to them and they would respect them. So the Holy Quran is using this as an argument. And he's telling the Arabs, those people that you know have knowledge, this is how they reacted to the Holy Quran. They were able to see that their knowledge led them to see the truth. Okay, so this is the second point. So the opposite, of course, is that if you see someone mocking religion, mocking the revelation, rejecting the revelation, rejecting or making fun of the Qur'an, as the Arabs used to do, or whatever version of it we might see today, is this a sign of knowledge or the opposite? This is a sign of ilm based on this verse or a sign of jahl, foolishness and ignorance. Okay, so this has to become like a almost a mathematical equation, right? Knowledge leads to faith. Knowledge leads to guidance, seeing the light, having a light that allows you to see the true signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and by opposition, or in the, as they say in math, the corollary of it would be that if this is not what's happening, then there is jahl leading to the opposite reaction. Okay? The third part the third point that we can take out of this is that those people, and we can extract that from the verse of the Holy Quran that said, when they say, Subhana Rabbina in kana wa'adu Rabbina la maf'ula, glory be to our Lord. The promise of our Lord is true. They connected the dots. Their knowledge allows them to put everything together. And they say, if this is true, therefore the promise of our Lord is true. This is a, a higher ability to connect things, to see the full picture. The Holy Quran is praising them for this. It's describing their state, and it's also praising their state. That these people are, you know, today we would say, this is their worldview. From a few signs, from a few revelations from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they're able to connect the dots and see, and see the big picture. 
The last point. The last point has to do with this verse from the Quran that was about the spirituality. Or as the Quran says, it summarizes all of this under khushu' To have humility and to have humility before God. It's not that you become someone who is full of fear in general. What are you afraid of? These people are only afraid of God. This is their reaction. The khushu' is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This becomes the criteria. So the criteria is to what extent is the additional knowledge that I'm acquiring increasing my khushu', increasing my humility before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This has to become the criteria. These people, when they increased their knowledge, when they were faced with the Holy Quran, the new knowledge that came, what did it do to them? It made them even more humble before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's one. That's one side of the spirituality. So there is definitely something we've talked about in a previous series on Aqaid. We called it a virtuous cycle of knowledge and piety. You have knowledge. If you act on that knowledge accordingly, this is called piety. You're being pious. You're you're having taqwa. What happens if you act on the knowledge? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will give you more knowledge. This knowledge, the second knowledge that you get, is not the knowledge that you get from the books. This is not something someone can teach you. You may hear things from others. You may read things. But the true knowledge Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will give you now, it's a guarantee from Allah that this is a knowledge He's giving you. This is a spiritual knowledge. This is a knowledge of the heart. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you act on the knowledge you have, you are showing me taqwa, I will give you more knowledge from me. This is, we can refer to this, we've been calling it the light. You have a light in your heart. If you act again on it, on this new knowledge you got, you are perform, you're showing, you're demonstrating more taqwa for the new knowledge you got, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will give you yet more knowledge. You want to keep elevating your spiritual rank, you just fall in this virtuous cycle. More knowledge means more taqwa. If you stop and you say, I'm not going to act on this new knowledge. You had the knowledge that if you perform the fast of Shahar Ramadan, it is really good for you. So you perform the fast of Shahar Ramadan. If you perform your obligatory prayers, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you have done your minimum. That's a knowledge. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you perform additional prayers, you pray Salat al-Layl, you fast a few more days during the year, you start helping the poor, even if you may not have to, you may choose not to, but if you do, because you have now knowledge, if you help the poor, that is even better. Now I have the knowledge. If I act on that knowledge, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you are showing me taqwa, I will give you more knowledge. I'll give you a gift. I'll give you one more opportunity to elevate your spiritual rank. Sometimes we say, okay, now I know. If I perform Salat al-Layl, it's really good. But I don't perform it. I didn't act on the knowledge. That's it. My rank stopped here. The difference between me and the person who's closer to God is that they acted on that knowledge. They said, I know now that if I perform Salat al-Layl, I get closer to God. I'm going to perform it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I will give them more knowledge now. And that's why we say, this knowledge that you get is not going to be 
something, you may hear it, but the effect that it has on you, there's a spiritual effect that it has on you. This is not simply because you heard the words. Not simply because someone gave you a new lecture that you had with information you didn't know before or a book that you read. It may come to you in that form externally, in appearance. But the true knowledge you're getting in this case is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in your heart. He makes you see the world differently. This is the spiritual light. Okay? This is what we're talking about in this verse. This verse says, those people, when they hear the verses of the Holy Quran repeated to them, they perform a sujood right away. And what happens to them? Obviously, when they perform the sujood, it's because they already have spirituality. They already have fear of God. They already have piety. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here, He says, and this only increases them in human. وَيَزِيدُهُمْ Every time they get more, this increases them in human. It doesn't stop. And this is the difference. You want to keep elevating your spiritual rank. Do you act based on the knowledge you have? It increases your rank. You stop, that's it. This is where you decided to stop. Someone else may continue. This is all in your hand. Do you act based on the knowledge you have or not? Okay, so this was one dimension of the spirituality. The other dimension of the spirituality, very quickly, is that the knowledge must lead to spirituality. And that's why we say in the verse, the Quran is saying, as soon as the knowledge comes to them, in this case, this is one example, it can look in a million different ways. The point is that it brings you closer to God. Automatically, if it is true knowledge, it brings you closer to God. So in this case, how does it show these people fall to their faces prostrating? This new knowledge, it didn't just make them a scholar that they carry more knowledge about the Holy Quran in general. You could see it in their action. This is their piety, this is their humility, how they conduct themselves in the world. What happens to them? You could see it right away. They fall down and the Holy Quran insists on this point here. It doesn't just say they became believers. It didn't just say that their knowledge increased. No, no, it gives you a full description of what's happening to them spiritually to the point where it's not just happening in their heart. It's happening in a way that you can see it on their bodies. It says they fall down to their faces, they cry, and they say these words. This is how the knowledge is affecting them. Okay, there's a lot more we can say about these verses, but generally speaking, and this gives us a whole theory about Islamic knowledge. From just these verses, we can extract a whole theory. What does Islamic knowledge look like? What does it do to you? How do we know that this is true knowledge or not? Okay, so perhaps these verses, because they're not usually studied or repeated as much as, for instance, in Surah Fatr, I thought it might be interesting to highlight a few uh, bullets from these uh, verses. And then we can maybe end this section with this hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam, in which he says, the true scholar, Imam Ali salam says, the scholar is the one or the true scholar is the one whose knowledge calls him to God-fearing and piety. Okay, so that's what we've been talking about. That's why we say 
one of the characteristics of the scholar is that they fear God. It's not how much information you carry. And detachment, and this knowledge calls them to detachment, this is zuhd. It's difficult to translate zuhd. The way generally people understand zuhd as being something that, or a characteristic or a trait or an appearance of someone who lives kind of a miserable life, an ascetic, a monk, in a cave, in a hole, they used to call it a sawma'a. A sawma'a is a tiny little enclave, whatever it may be. It may be a hole in the ground, just big enough for, the, for you, for one person. Or a little hut over a tree. And they never leave it and they spend their days and nights worshipping. That's the real meaning of sawma'a. And there were people throughout history who spend their lives in sawma'a, worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That may be considered a form of zuhd. No issue. But this is not the only form of zuhd. If this was truly the best way to be zahid, to be an ascetic, as they say, then this is how the prophets and the messengers and Ahl al-Bayt would have lived. They didn't live that way. They lived among the people. They performed their acts of worship, but they lived a normal human life. So what is then this zuhd, if this is not what it is? It's that your heart is not attached to the things. You may have them. You have clothes, you have food, you have a car, you have a house, you have a job. How attached are you to these things? And to what extent do you know that these are the necessities of this world? And this is a passing. This is a station in a journey. You have to go through certain things. You stop, you rest. When you're traveling, there's a pit stop. There's a station where you stop to sleep a little, eat a little, Maybe you need new clothes. Maybe you need a new way to travel, a new vehicle. You change from a car to another, a train, an airplane. If suddenly you stop there and you stop moving, you're never going to get to your destination. If you get too distracted by the things in the station, you were on your way to a country and you stop at a little restaurant on the way to rest a little bit, and you get so distracted by the food in the restaurant that you decide to spend the rest of your life in that restaurant. If someone would look at that, they say you're, you lack judgment. You lack wisdom. The point was not to stop at the restaurant. It wasn't to stop at a station in the middle of the way. The point was to get to your destination. This was just a pit stop on the journey, a station to rest. Oftentimes, we live our lives like the person who stopped at the restaurant in the middle of the way and decided not to continue. We forget the destination. The Holy Quran, this is the focus. That this life is a pit station, a pit stop. You stop here to take what you need from here. To live the life you're supposed to live, to prepare for something else. You can't carry everything you need to carry with you. You have to stop on the way to take the rest that you need. If this is what you do, you've shown wisdom. You're focused on your destination. You understand the purpose here. If you don't, you get too distracted on the pit stop. And you forget that you have a destination. You decide that all of your energy is now going to be spent. All of your money, all of your energy, all of your time is now in the pit stop. 
We stopped at a restaurant. I'm going to spend all my time and all my energy and all my focus on things that I see in the restaurant and something that was supposed to be very temporary. It's not that it's not important. You need it. It's necessary to get to the next phase. But it's not the point. That was not the purpose. Okay? So, in any case, all of that is to say, when we say zuhud in our religion, we don't mean someone who completely neglects this temporary stop. This temporary stop that we call life, the world, it's necessary. We have no choice to go through it. This is the only way we prepare to the next phase of our journey, of our existence. The only way is to go through this. But we have to do it in a way where we're focused on the purpose, the destination, not the temporary station. So zuhud simply means that your heart is not attached. The less your heart is attached to the things of this world, the more zuhud you have. It's not that you don't have the things. And that's why some of our scholars, when they say, what is zuhud? They say, it's not that you don't own anything. Zuhud is that nothing owns you. To what extent are you a slave to these things? Are you dependent on these things? Do you rely on these things? And to what extent do you use these things for a higher purpose? Okay, so this is the zuhud. When Imam Ali السلام, says, إِنَّمَا الْعَالِمْ مَنْ دَعَاهُ عِلْمُهُ إِلَى الْوَرَعِ وَالتُّقَى وَالزُّهُدْ فِي عَالَمِ الْفَنَاءِ Okay, so Imam Ali here is saying, so the scholar, the true scholar, is the one whose knowledge, that's the whole point of this, is the knowledge. What does it lead to? It leads to God-fearing, that's what we've been talking about, and what else? And piety, they go together, and detachment, and zuhud, and detachment from the vanishing world, alam al-fana. Fana is something that exists and then suddenly disappears, ceases to exist. Now Imam is referring to this whole world as a world vanishing, disappearing. So the vanishing world and to be infatuated, this is the consequence of knowledge. Again, another word that is extremely difficult to translate. This tawalluh fi jannatil ma'wa. This word is actually the same root, if you bring it back to its root, the same word or the same root as Allah. So Imam Ali is saying, We have Ahlul Bayt, they were asked, What does Allah mean? What does it come from? And we have narrations from Ahlul Bayt is to say, Someone who is, you're bewildered. You're at a loss. The more you think about it, the more you are lost. This is the root of the word alihe. Tawallahe. You think about something incessantly. The more you think about it, the more you want to think about it. You can't reach the end of it. So Imam Ali السلام, here is saying, this is what knowledge really does to someone. True knowledge is going to make you fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, be detached from the things of this world because they are all vanishing eventually, and this incessant thinking and infatuation with the paradise of the abode, 
where you're going to end up. This is your destination. This is where you're focused on. This is what true knowledge does to you. That you're focused on your end. And your end has to be paradise. The heaven. The heaven of your abode, of your final destination, where you want to end up. Okay? So, and we'll see more ahadith related to this, but inshallah with this we wrap up this topic of knowledge having to lead to God-fearing, humility before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, spirituality. Now we turn our attention to what I have called in my notes the social burden of knowledge, the social duty, the social responsibility of knowledge. And again, we're building on everything we've said until now. But here the focus, we could focus in every hadith that we're going to start seeing. We could again, as usual, when people look at these hadith, we focus on either what does it mean for me as someone carrying the knowledge? That's one. Or two, what does it mean in terms of duty towards others? Not because there are others looking at me in itself, but because God says, because others are looking at me, there's a duty. It's not that I care so much what others think. That's not what we're saying. We're saying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells me, now you carry knowledge, yeah, you have an additional duty, an additional responsibility. And inshallah, maybe towards the end, we'll go back to a couple of examples, verses from the Holy Quran to wrap this, maybe not today, to wrap this idea of the social duty from examples of the Holy Quran. Because sometimes we may think this is not fair. No, it's very fair. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, people fall in different categories. Depending on which category you fall into, you have a different duty. You have a different responsibility. Your reward may be multiplied and your punishment may be multiplied because you know much more than others, because you have much more duty than others. So carrying knowledge is definitely one of these traits, characteristics that is going to change your duty, change your responsibility socially. It's not that it invalidates the individual dimension. You add it to it. So the first hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. He says, What's afa? We've seen the word a few times now. It's the problem, the illness, the challenge. All of these can be translations of afa. Imam Ali salam says, Al-Amma is the masses, the general populace, the general population. What is their illness? What is their challenge? What is their main problem? Imam Ali says, Al-Alim Al-Fajr. A corrupt, a depraved, an immoral scholar. Why? This is what we're going to start seeing. We're going to see a hadith that tell us this is the issue, and we're going to see a hadith that tell us why this is an issue. But clearly here, the alim has a responsibility not only towards himself. I carry knowledge, I have to act according to the knowledge I carry. This applies to everyone. The alim has an additional responsibility. Because if he doesn't meet that responsibility, Imam Ali is saying, he is the illness of the society. He is the illness of the community, this alim, if he becomes fajr. 
The normal person, if he becomes fajr, if he becomes immoral and depraved, he's only responsible for himself. Imam Ali salam, see, here he says, this is the illness of society. The illness of the general population is an immoral scholar. Okay, the next hadith from Imam Ali salam. He says, Zallatul alim tufsidul awalim. The slip, that's the zalla. So the mistake, the slip of the scholar corrupts worlds. Destroys worlds. That's already an explanation. Why is it that you have an additional burden? The normal person, when they slip up, their slip up is going to be only at their level. When the alim slips up, when the alim makes a mistake, he destroys worlds, Imam Ali says. The next hadith, very similar. Zallatul alim kinkisar as-safina, Imam Ali says. Taghraq wa tughriqu ma'aha ghayraha. Not only is the scholar going to be responsible for themselves, he says he's like a ship. When it breaks, it's not only the ship that sinks, everyone on that ship also sinks with it. The scholar is like that. So this is what we mean when we say there's a social dimension to carrying knowledge. Otherwise, you're only responsible for yourself. No, not when you're a scholar. And so this is where we're going to try to do this balancing act as we did with the learner. You're seeing on the one side, when we did, when we spoke about the learner, you saw the rank and the merit of the learner. Unmatched. The moment you become a knowledge seeker, the reward that you get, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala multiplies your rewards, unmatched, incredible. But it came with a responsibility. The same thing is going to happen with the scholar. We haven't talked about the ranks and the merits of the scholar. Because otherwise, why would anyone want to become a scholar? If it's only social responsibility and burden, and this huge risk on your shoulders, well, if the idea is to get as close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as possible, to get as much reward in this pit stop that is life as possible, this is a shortcut. What others have to spend a lifetime doing, you're going to see the ahadith. You can get in a glimpse, in an instant, in a minute, or in an hour. And they have to do a lot more. They can spend a lot more money. They can sacrifice a lot more. If you fall in the category of the teacher, you're tr truly carrying knowledge and impacting people's lives in the right way. You get all of that and more in an instant. But it also comes with this responsibility, with this risk. Because if you're not acting based on that knowledge, or, the opposite, you're acting contrarily to the knowledge. You're doing the opposite of that knowledge. That knowledge is leading to people leaving religion. When people see how you act, they say, if this is knowledge, then I don't want to have any. And if this is religion, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Which happens and it has happened throughout history. And it continues to happen today. If this is what you're doing with knowledge, then you're going to see that the burden, the weight of that, the punishment, the divine anger related to that is also unmatched. Next hadith. 
from Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, La zallah ashaddu min zallatil alam. There is no slip up that is worse than the slip up of the scholar. So I could say more, but I think I'm going to leave it to the explanations of the hadith themselves. As, as we usually try to do, the hadith build. We're going to start getting the explanation. The next hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam. So we now know the slip-up of the scholar. There's nothing that matches it. It's like no other slip-up. That it can lead to the destruction of worlds. How? Why? Imam Ali alayhi salam says in another hadith, إِنَّ كَلَامَ الْحُكَمَاءِ إِذَا كَانَ صَوَابًا كَانَ دَوَاءً وَإِذَا كَانَ خَطَأً كَانَ دَاءً The sayings or the speech of the wise, when it is correct, it is a cure. And when it is incorrect, it is a disease. It's an illness. This is not the case with the speech of any human being, any normal person. In a lot of cases, we could consider speech to be neutral. Imam Ali salam here, he removes the neutral option. There's no neutral. If it's a true scholar speaking, everything they're saying has to fall in one of two categories. Either it is correct or it is incorrect. This is how people view it. This is the effect that it has on people. It is either correct or incorrect. If it is correct, Imam Ali salam says, it's a remedy. There are people who are carrying disease, illness, the words that this alim says are a cure to that illness, if it is correct. And if it is incorrect, those words are the illness itself. They cause illness, they cause disease. In normal people, that's not the case. When you speak, it could be neutral. And if it is incorrect, it may not affect that many people. And if it is correct, it may also not affect that many people. Because it's limited to your position and how people view you and your competence, and your ability to deliver the message, and so on and so forth. We're going to see that. The next hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ. He says, أَلَا إِنَّ شَرَّ الشَّرَّ شِرَارُ الْعُلَمَاءِ وَإِنَّ خَيْرَ الْخَيْرَ خِيَارُ الْعُلَمَاءِ The Holy Prophet says, The worst of evil are the worst of scholars. And the best of what is good, the best of virtue, are the virtuous scholars, the best of scholars. This is quite a serious statement from the Holy Prophet If someone were to ask you, what's the worst thing you could think of? From all evil, what is the most, form, what is the most evil form of all evil? That's what the Holy Prophet is saying. In nasharr there is sharr, and then there is the worst of sharr. So the worst form of evil, he says, is the evil scholar. That's the thing that can damage the most in this world. And by opposition, of course, what is the best of anything that is good in this world? A good scholar. Because that's the person who can have the greatest impact and effect in this world. Next hadith from the Holy Prophet 
لما سئل عن شر الناس قال العلماء إذا فسدوا The Holy Prophet was asked Who are the worst of people? He said the scholars If they turn evil There's a hadith from Imam Ali alayhi salam The beginning is the same العلماء إذا فسدوا سئل من شر الناس قال العلماء إذا فسدوا And then he continued He said هم المظهرون للأباطيل الكاتمون للحقائق So he says, who are the worst of people? They are the scholars if they turn evil. They are the ones who bring out falsehood and the ones who hide the truth. So there's two ways to understand this. One way is to say, Imam Ali السلام, is defining to us. If I were to ask Imam Ali السلام, what does it mean that a scholar has turned evil? He's explaining to me that if the scholar is now someone who is bringing out falsehood and someone who is hiding the truth, that's one way to understand this. So the imam is defining who is the evil scholar. He's giving us the characteristics of the evil scholar. And that makes sense. The other way to understand this is to understand this as an explanation. Imam Ali alayhi salam If you look at this, he's saying scholars, if they are evil, why is it that the worst of people are scholars when they turn evil? Why? He's giving you the explanation. He's giving you the cause. Why are they the worst of people? Because they are the ones who bring about, who bring out falsehood. The evil scholar is the one who brings out the falsehood. The evil scholar is the one who can hide the truth. And this speaks to a lot of things. The first part of it is for us to wonder, what are they doing that is causing this? On one side, the impact of the scholar is because of the knowledge they carry. They carry much more knowledge than the average person. In addition to that, and because of that, they have a different social position. People listen when they talk. That's one. So you listen to them a lot more. There's a psychosocial dimension to this. You live in a society, you respect someone because they're an expert, because of their knowledge in an area. Beyond that, this person, if they are a scholar, in the social sense, not the spiritual sense, if they are a scholar, of course their ability to present the information is better. Of course their ability to argue is stronger. Of course they can seem a lot more convincing than the average person. Of course this is going to be very different. The effect that they have on people is going to be very different. That's two. Three. Who else has access to the truth? No one. Only the person who is the scholar knows the truth, if there is a truth to be known. They are the exclusive gate to the truth. And this is the one of the keys here, in addition to the two previous points. They have a social status, they have a competence, but they have an exclusivity over truth. If you hide the truth, how else are people supposed to reach it? 
That's it. You decided to close the door. And by opposition, if you spread falsehood, how will people know? So you are becoming the source of evil or good in the world. This is the reason. This is different than saying you just have knowledge. It's not that you have knowledge. It's that you have an exclusive position in people's minds. And so this is why Imam Ali says, There could be a lot of batal out there, a lot of falsehood out there. But the true sources of its appearance in the world is scholars. And the true source of truth not making it to the people are scholars. Those are the ones who carry the weight, who have that type of impact or effect on society. And that's why they carry that burden too. Now we're going to keep talking about the social burden of knowledge, but we're adding one more layer. So we focused on the knowledge itself. Now we're going to start turning to the action of the scholar. The next one, so the next category or the next topic is going to, generally speaking, I called it love of the world. By opposition to what we saw initially when we started talking about the scholar, and we said how the priority has to be the afterlife, it can't look like you love this world, obsessed with this world, that this world is a priority, and so on and so forth. Okay, so first hadith from the Holy Prophet And there's quite a few ahadith in the same kind of wording, in the same vein. The first one, the Holy Prophet says, قَصَمَ ظَهْرِي رَجُلًا مِنْ أُمَّتِي عَالِمٌ فَاسِقْ وَزَاهِدٌ جَاهِلْ فَالزَّاهِدُ بِلَا عِلْمٍ بَاطِلْ or وَالزُّهْدُ أو فَالزُّهْدُ بِلَا عِلْمٍ بَاطِلْ وَالْعِلْمُ بِلَا زُهْدٍ عَاطِلْ So this is the first one. The Holy Prophet وآله, he says, there are two men in my nation who have broken my back. The indecent scholar, the fasiq, fasiq technically means someone who will openly perform a sin in front of you. That's called fisq. Okay, so you know that this person performs a sin. They don't even hide it. You don't even have a doubt. This person performs a sin. So the Holy Prophet is saying, there are two men in my nation who broke my back, who have exhausted me, made me ill, made me stressed and anxious. To the point where he says they have broken my back. Who are they? The first one is the scholar who openly openly performs a sin. Someone who carries knowledge and who openly performs a sin. That's one. And the second one, he says, and the ignorant worshipper. Someone who worships, but entirely based on ignorance. No knowledge. And then he explains. فَالزُّهْدُ بِلَا عِلْمٍ Batal. To be an ascetic, to be someone who seems to be detached, as we said, detached from this world. You spend your, your whole life only worshipping, or so you claim. Worship without knowledge is falsehood. It's false. 
And that's why we've said from the beginning of the series, focus on knowledge. Knowledge will lead to the right worship. Worship on its own, by itself, is empty. Here the Holy Prophet goes even further. He doesn't even just say Al-Abid. He says Al-Zahid, which is someone who we call an ascetic. They don't just worship a lot. They worship in a way that is completely detached from this world. But they have absolutely no knowledge. And we don't have time. This is a whole theme. We don't have time to go into it now. He says this type of very intense, strong worship without knowledge is batal. And the other side. And knowledge. Why the Holy Prophet focuses on these two? Because these are the two extremes. These are the two main ingredients in knowledge. In, in religion there are people who are worshippers and there are people who are scholars he says the worship without knowledge is batal and knowledge without worship and without zuhd without the detachment from this world is just information atal. it's useless when you have a, a car in Arabic and you say it's not working it's just parked but you can't do anything with it what do you say? It's atal. It's useless. It's non-functioning. Ilm without zuhd, if ilm does not need to some does not lead to some sort of detachment from this world, the khushu' and the fear of God that we've been talking about, the Holy Prophet in one word says, Atal. This knowledge is useless. Okay? That's the first hadith. Again, here we're focusing on more the social dimension. Second hadith, Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, قَصَمَ ظَهْرِي رَجُلًا عَالِمٌ متهتك وَجَاهِلٌ متنسك. Okay, we'll say it in, in uh, English. هَذَا يُظِلُّ النَّاسَ عَنْ عِلْمِهِ بِتَهَتُّكِهِ وَهَذَا يَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَى جَهْلِهِ بِتَنَسُّكِهِ Imam Ali alayhi salam goes a step further. He says, two men have broken my back. The same in the same vein as the Holy Prophet Two men have broken my back. A scholar who openly commits sins and an ignorant man who is pious. So the Holy Prophet described the issue with these people and themselves. He's showing that the worship of the worshiper is falsehood in itself. And the knowledge of the scholar who doesn't worship is useless in itself. Here Imam Ali السلام, is now explaining the social dimension of this. So he starts in the same way, but now he says, this one misguides people away from his knowledge because of his open sins. This one is a, a scholar. He has knowledge that he should be sharing with the people. People turn away from him. Why? Because they see sins. They see things that they would not want to receive from such a person. They don't want to be associated with that. Who wants this type of faith? Who wants this type of religion? Who wants this type of knowledge? If you openly perform fisq, if you openly do things that people find revolting. And on the other side, what about the, what about the zahid or the nasik? The nasik is the worshiper, the monk. Mutanasik. What about him? What's his issue? Imam Ali السلام, said two people, right? Alimun mutahitik wa jahilun mutanasik. So this is a worshipper who is ignorant, who is foolish. What's the issue with him? 
وَهَذَا يَدْعُوهُمْ إِلَىٰ جَهْلِهِ بِتَنَسَّكِهِ So one of them, he's a scholar, and he pushes people away with his sins. And the other one, he's ignorant, but he brings people to his ignorance through his worship. This is why Imam Ali says, those are the two people who have broken my back. How do I make people, the masses, see the issue with these? I can't. Because people are normally, naturally attracted to this type of worship and detachment from the world. And people are naturally re- revolted by things that they find ugly, lacking value, lacking principle that they're seeing from the scholar. This is a human trait. So it's as though the Holy Prophet, Imam Ali is saying, we're powerless. There are people who are scholars and who perform ugly things. And people no longer want to have anything to do with religion or knowledge because of them. And there are people who are ignorant and foolish, but they perform things and they act in a way that is very attractive to people. They seem to be, people understand this as being religion. This as being good. This blind worship. This ignorant form of, or foolish form of worship. And so Imam says, this one pushes people away from from his knowledge. He pushes people away through his sins. And the other one attracts people to his, to his foolishness and to his ignorance with his worship. Okay, that's the second hadith. The third one, and we'll stop here. Again, Imam Ali alayhi salam, he begins by saying, There are two people who have broken my back in this world. Rajulun alimul lisan fasiqun. وَرَجُلٌ جَاهِلُ الْقَلْبِ نَاسِكٌ So here Imam Ali alayhi salam, he adds a word. عَلِيمُ lisan. He says this person is a scholar. But this is not a true scholar. This is a scholar in speech. This is someone who can talk the talk. This is the man who broke Imam Ali's back. Because people can't distinguish because he has the competence. The, in appearance, he has the competence of the scholar. So here the imam qualified him. So this is a clue for us. This is not the true scholar. This is not just someone who is alim or alim. This is alimul lisan. He knows the ways of speech. Alimul lisan fasiq wa rajulun jahilul qalbi nasik. The other one, he has ignorance of the heart. So here, these are two qualifiers from Imam Ali alayhi salam. And then he explains, So the first one, he prevents people from seeing his sins, from seeing his ugliness, from seeing his corruption, depravity. He blocks them off with his tongue, with his speech. He can justify anything, and he can argue anything, and he convince anyone of anything. هَذَا يَصُدُّ بِلِسَانِهِ عَنْ فِسْقِهِ وَهَذَا يَنْسُكُهُ عَنْ جَهْلِهِ فَاتَّقُ الْفَاسِقَ مِنَ الْعُلَمَاءِ وَالْجَاهِلَ مِنَ الْمُتَعَبِّدِينَ The rest is the same. أُولَٰئِكَ فِتْنَةُ كُلِّ مَفْتُونَ They are the fitna, the test, the challenge where people fail, right? The failure of everyone who fails, the challenge of everyone who is challenged. 
And al-fitna, of course, is when the truth is ambiguous. That's when this word is used. This is why these people are so difficult to the point where Imam Ali السلام, or the Holy Prophet say they have broken my back. Because the masses, the general people, are not able to distinguish. This person is a scholar. So I'm no longer able to really distinguish. This person is a abid, mutanassik. I'm no longer really able. Their nusuk, their ibadah, their worship is going to blind me from the rest. Their knowledge is going to blind me from the rest. Their ability with their tongue is going to blind me from the rest. أُولَٰئِكَ فِتْنَةُ كُلِّ مَفْتُونَ فَإِنِّي سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَآلِهِ يَقُولُ يَا عَلِي هَلَاكُ أُمَّتِي عَلَىٰ يَدَيْ كُلِّ مُنَافِقٍ عَلِيمٍ لِسَانِ So Imam Ali alayhi salam, he says, So be careful of the scholar who is corrupt, the worshiper who is ignorant. They are the fall. They are the problem, the failure of everyone who fails, of everyone who falls. They are the slip-up. They are the source of that slip-up. And then the Holy Prophet wasallam said, the Holy Prophet, I heard the Holy Prophet say, O Ali, halaku ummati, the destruction of my nation is how will be at the hands of a hypocrite with a knowledgeable tongue. With someone who is able to talk the talk. They have the ability to convince and to argue and to present information. So here there's an additional layer from Imam Ali salam about the danger of these people. So let's stop here inshallah. There's a lot more to cover. But I think for today that's enough. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين Questions, concerns, comments About Hadith when he he brought this, almost the same hadith of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam saying, You gave two explanations, mashallah. But, but a third one come up. If we use um, some of the, you know, rules, right? If we, um, right? And, and then it, was, it will become... This is what they should be. Mm-hmm. So, in um, in another like layer of explanation, or we'll give probably we'll give a, a third layer of explanation that, that I don't know it's, if it's true or not or close to the, to the truth. So, because we talk we're talking uh, uh, truthness and falseness, right? Mm-hmm. So it's as if. When they know about the falseness and they talk about it without giving an appropriate solution to it, it's like they're they're in a state of right? And to the same extent, when they speak about the truth as being being you know superficial, without going to the deep of the truthness, so this is what they do. And we we. 
we can witness many scholars doing subhanAllah, doing the same mistake, right? They talk about the issue, you know, they're like, because idhar is like an ayah, right? So some people may not even know about such, such or such a calamity. But when these scholars bring it to the table without working on it, you know, hardly, mm-hmm. because this is their first duty. So I don't know if this can be as a third, because I believe, you know, they have layers in, in their words and, and, and thoughts. So do you have any comments on this thing? So, so I think the, the, the comment itself is uh, very valid. It shows, it shows another layer, and you're absolutely right. Um, it speaks to Ahlul Bayt when they talk about the, the the lacks of the scholar, or or the lacks of you know the the scholar who has gone bad. The color corollary of it is therefore by opposition, the opposite should be what would be done by the the right scholar, the good scholar when they are good. Um, the points you mentioned, I think they're. We're going to touch on them. I, I'm not sure to the same extent or in the same dimension. I think you're talking about the truth itself, which is absolutely valid. But there's an, an additional layer to it, I think, too, that I had it in my points, but I don't want to talk about it now because we're going to see a hadith that directly talks about it. Uh, and this is the social, uh, the social justice dimension, that the the scholar is also responsible for you know, saying there's a social injustice here. And this is how a social justice needs to happen, right? And so we're going to see that. I, if I remember, I think from uh, the, the example I had, and it will come a little bit later. I, in fact, wanted to finish this whole section <laughs> uh, with that hadith. So we may not even get to it for next week. Uh, but I believe it was from Al-Khutbah uh, al Imam Ali alayhi He says, this is the duty of the scholars, that they show the truth that they speak the truth. That, and he is here talking about, obviously, social justice. He's not only talking about uh, a theoretical, you know, the, the Quran is right, or Ahlul Bayt are right, or there are specific social events taking place, and the scholar has to take a side and show this is truth and this is false, right? And so I think this one, the reason I, I was going to use it is it's more explicit in, in explaining that social duty of the scholar. But what you're referring to is definitely 100% correct too. And there are a hadith about it. That as humul mudhiruna lil the evil scholar is the one who is going to show falsehoods, that they're going to reveal or to bring out into the world the falsehoods. Therefore, the True scholar is going to be the one who is going to reveal or push out the truth. And otherwise, and that was the point, otherwise who is going to do it? Exclusively them. They are the ones who are in that position to bring it about. Otherwise it will remain unknown. And the opposite, al-katimuna lil-haqa'iq. They are the ones who, katim is, you know, you you keep it, uh, they are the silencers. (laughs) Okay? It's like a silencer that you put on a gun, like they say. Right? That's the katim. Katim l-sawt. Okay, they are al-katimuna lil-haqa'iq. There is a truth that they keep under wraps. They keep hidden. And it can never reach out. Therefore, the, the role of the true scholar is to take that truth that can never come out except through them and bring it about. Otherwise, where is it going to stay? And how is this going to ever reach the people? And that's why we, that was the point about exclusivity. The, 
Everything else we've said, I think, may be clear, except this point that the scholar is sitting in an exclusive position, that no one else can perform this duty except them. Because of their background, because of the knowledge they have, because of the, their competence, their, their abilities, one, and two, because of their social status. Someone else may know the same thing, but how are they going to have the reach? How are they going to be impactful? Who will take their word for it if they are not a scholar, if they're not recognized as a scholar? Right? So this this was, I think, the point, but you're you're absolutely right. So maybe a fifth layer of explanation as well, because when you said like an elementary level, a scholar could be uh, the seeker of knowledge or something. Yeah. Like we're all scholars in a, in a, in a, in a way or not. So if we take a hadith as being hadith al-irshad, it would be don't get yourself into you know speaking up about calamities if you don't know or you cannot bring or contribute to any solution and and don't even talk about the truth which is a truth in your mind if you don't know all the layers or you know as much as you can carry before talk, talking about the truth yeah, this is another 100% that is there too. And we're going to see a hadith exactly about this point. And so this point is, make sure that, I, I wrote it as, you know, it's a, it's a fine balancing act in my notes. And it's a difficult one. Because on the one side, this is how I wrote it here. I, I, I said, therefore, fine balancing act. Must talk, plus must be truth. So, you have a duty to speak up, but you also have a duty to know that what you're saying is the truth. Otherwise, you're going to negate one of these conditions. I didn't talk about it because I thought it's going to complicate the layers. But you're absolutely right. Is that on the one side, if you don't speak up, then this is a shortcoming and you're starting to fall into the definition of the evil scholar. So you have to speak up. But what if you speak up and it's wrong? Then you still fall under the definition of the evil scholar so you must speak up but make sure that what you're saying is the truth must speak up while ensuring that what you're saying is the truth and it's not easy right so this this is where the fine balancing act happens you have to understand what your duty is and where do you fall on that are you ready to speak up about it or is there more work required you need to get more knowledge more qualification a better approach consult others team up with others, whatever it may be. Okay, but uh, it's, a, it's a great point. And we wanted to come back to it. But here, this is exactly how I wrote it. As well. Yeah, and sometimes I think, you know, we've covered the hadith enough. I think that's enough of, a, of, of points. But there's always, like, if we sit here and spend two hours collectively, we'll come up with five more. I call them corollaries because sometimes they're not... They're not maybe the explicit meaning that comes to mind, but we can certainly derive it out of it, right? So there's a lot more we can derive from these. I always try to, to ingrain that, that the hadith, if you look at them as, as though like they're, they're kind of a universal principle, how much can they explain in the world? If you understand, you know, physical laws or mathematical laws, you know, once you understand it, you can use, use it and, and apply it. And these are the applications to millions of cases, 
right? So this is where, you know, the, the more you start understanding the ahadith of Ahlul Bayt or the verses of the Quran in this way, the more you see them as live texts, right? And the more you think about it, the more you get out of them. Ahsantum. Allah yakhalikum. You understood 100%. When we don't know the way, you're following someone. Let's say we are somewhere in the desert. When people go to the desert, they hire a guide, even in the time of early Islam. Right? They would hire a guide. The Holy Prophet in some of the wars, the battles, or when he would travel, he would hire people. They were well known to be the guides of the desert. You put them anywhere in the desert and they can tell you how to get back, depending on which direction you're trying to go. So when you're following the guide, do you know where you're going? No. All you know is you're following in their footsteps or you're following the person. So if this person gets you back to the right way, that's it, you're saved. And if this person keeps going deeper and deeper and walking in circles in the, in the desert, then you're just following them. And you're just going to get more and more lost, more and more misguided, and you will not know. The general, the only people who can tell you this is wrong is another expert, right? They'll tell you this, is, this person is walking in the wrong way. You might see clues here and there. But if you don't have the knowledge yourself, the expertise yourself, you're at their mercy. So this is why everything we're talking about comes to this point. That the scholar or the teacher or the person who is now the source of your information, if they are going in a mistaken way, you're just following them in the same mistake. You and I and everybody else. Because this is a person we're following. So the responsibility is very big. And the reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is also very big. Okay, and so that's what, why it's so important for the scholar, and that was the point we were talking about, to make sure that the direction they're taking, the opinion they give, the theory they present, the information they give us, is actually correct. Because if it is not, he not only is he going to be lost, but there are a lot of people waiting for him to guide them who will also be lost too. Right? Yeah. Ahsant, you understood it very well. Another question? That's it? Ahsant, that was a really good question. Was there a question here, sisters? Um, I was just going to ask if you can elaborate more about uh, when you mentioned that uh, a scholar is, uh, as, is at, the, at the end of the day, he embodied uh, the truth. So if you can just uh, maybe elaborate it. Was it in... in uh, a specific hadith or no in general? Uh, yes, it was. Uh, I think it was in a hadith that you, you mentioned. So it was um, yeah, the one about. Uh, yeah, the one of Imam Ali when he said that uh, the worst of people are the scholars who turn heavy uh, and don't. Uh, and you bring a force with as well. Yeah, so I think the point I was uh, trying to make that the scholar is 
becomes an embodiment of the truth. Um, of course, we don't mean that in truth, the scholar is the embodiment of the truth. We mean socially. We mean, or what I called psychosocially. In the psychology of the people, this is the truth. This person equals the truth. And so this is why it becomes such a problem. Who else represents the truth if not him or not her? This is the truth. The person who has spent you know, their whole life apparently seeking the truth, representing religion, representing the truth, whatever it may be, if they do not represent at the end of the day the truth, then who does? No one. So that's simply what we meant. We're, we don't mean that they are the true embodiment of the truth unless we have a guarantee. You know, like there was a time, for instance, at the time of, I don't know, uh, how lucky these companions were. In the time of Imam al-Sadiq they would come and they want to debate with the Imam. And the Imam, he doesn't want to debate them directly. They would come from Iraq, they would come from Yemen, they would come to Medina or elsewhere. When Imam al-Sadiq at some point he was even in Iraq, and they would come, they try to debate with him. And so if the person is just there to learn, it's one thing. But the Imam knows these people are coming as a for polemical reasons. They want to have a back and forth to argue with the Imam. And the Imam wanted to, well, on one side, he, he is, um, let's say, promoting. He is showing who his students were, but he's also training his students to put them in that situation and to argue with the greatest scholars who have come these long distances to argue with them. And you have these sayings from the imams, and this to me, for instance, as someone who's trying to learn my religion, when they go back and forth with Imam al-Sadiq, they tell him, I want to argue with you. He tells him, what do you want to talk about? For instance, he says, uh, I want to talk about the Qur'an. He tells him, then talk with so-and-so. He says, I want to talk about fiqh. He tells him, talk with another one, for instance. And so when he pushes the imam, he says, no, I have come all this way to talk with you. The imam tells him, if you beat him, you have beaten me. Okay. So to me, as someone who's now, centuries later, trying to learn from the imam Sadiq salam, of course I want to see what the imam says. But I also want to see what this person said. Because the imam has now given a guarantee that this person is going, he has been so well taught by imam Sadiq salam that... The Imam stands behind every word he says. Or he says, in another, in another, he has uh, letters in which some of the Imams have written this about some of the companions, and they have said this also. What they say is what I say. And what they write or what they teach is what I teach. That's it. That, that's the, the gear. So yes, they are trustworthy. That, that establishes, the, and people focus on the trustworthiness. I know that for a fact, if the imam were asked the same question, he's not going to answer the same way as this person. But the imam is still accepting this as the truth. So in that case, I would say, yes, this answer, not this person. This answer from this person embodies the truth. Okay, We have cases like that, but you have to first establish that the imam really said it about this person in this instance, does it apply or not? And uh, that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole process. Otherwise, we have to go back to Ahl al-Bayt say they alone are the ones who are an embodiment of the truth. As the Holy Prophet says himself about Imam Ali Right? And so we apply it to the other Imams. But general rule, no, what I was referring to is simply the social understanding of people that this is the embodiment of truth or of religion and therefore if they mess up then 
everything is messed up. If they mess up, then who else is going to be right? Yeah, I sent them. Any other questions, comments? You do have? Tfadudu, <laughs> one last one. So, we know from, uh, you know, from many books that talk about the Badaviyati life, that uh, knowledge gains uh, its traits of production only by being accumulated. So, we accumulate more knowledge and then we can transform it. So, and so your advice in a nutshell, like the mechanism, because it, like, it, it looks and it is, it's like an endless and continuous assessment that you should have, you should do. In which level I can transform my knowledge into action, that action will reflect faith and then it will increase my my humility and then the virtuous cycle of faith and knowledge and then you become alim and then so the you know steps although probably it may be difficult to you know to have like a clear steps and, and, and one two three four and then go practice so your vision say uh, yeah, so so what's, what are the steps to undertake this, uh, what we call the virtuous cycle of knowledge leading to piety and piety leading to more knowledge? The threshold of the knowledge. The threshold of the knowledge. Uh, yeah, to become transformable. Yeah. So at which level I would say, yes, now I can act upon this knowledge? Yeah, so... Um, th- different answers because it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. But in short, the general rule that we have seen in the uh, the the general theory that you, you refer to epistemology or the theory of knowledge, I would not say that it is uh, entirely compatible with Islamic uh, principles to start with. The theory in general says that you accumulate knowledge based on knowledge based on knowledge so layers upon layers of knowledge and this is how civilization moves forward so in a certain way true um islam doesn't say it that way though islam never presents it as an accumulation it's not by volume it's by quality so it doesn't need to be a lot but it needs to be the right knowledge and you have to act on it like right away (laughs) as soon as you know you act Okay, but this means that every little piece has to be acted on. And this leads to the big theory. If everybody is doing their little part, you have a completely different society. And I think you are referring to like social action, not individual. Individual should not be a problem. You know, if it's, we're talking about like the individual responsibilities in religion, that whether you stand in your little on your prayer mat and you perform your prayer and no one knows and no one is impacted, that part should never be an issue, right? The issue is the collective dimension of religion, that there is amr bil-ma'ruf nahi al-munkar, that there is a, a social action that comes out of it so that it doesn't only impact you, it's going to impact at least one more human being outside of you, right? Or two or three or ten or a million. This is where it becomes a lot more of a, um, a, a lot more of a negotiation, 
And this is where, of course, you have to add layers upon layers of understanding. And there is still no one answer to it. Inshallah, a little bit later, as soon as we're do done with this part, the next big um, you know, uh, principle that we're looking at, or the, or the next heading that we're looking at in this, in this series of intellect and knowledge, is going to be the types of knowledge. But before we talk about the types, we have to spend time on the notion of priorities. We're going to see that our religion says, here are types of knowledge that you have to know, and you don't learn them randomly. You, you learn them in a certain sequence. So first and foremost, and it's, I think, um, in a way reflected, inshallah, in our series, okay, in the, the whole skeleton that we, we put together for this series, it starts with what the big theme that we give to it is aqaid or aqid. It starts with, do you have a worldview? Do you understand how you fit in this system of existence or not? That, that's layer one. Don't even think about doing anything else until that part is clear, right? You have to have an, an understanding of what's your relationship with God, what's your relationship with yourself, what's your relationship with the afterlife, what does that mean concretely in your life? That This is a worldview, Be, even before we go into the second layer. Then after that, you have to understand what are the necessities or the imperatives. And after that, you go to the luxuries. And then here is where the Holy Quran is going to give us the principles. You can't start trying to affect change to others when you haven't secured something yourself. You don't try to go helping people halfway across the world when your whole uh, direct family is, is suffering from something, right? You start from there. You, don't go talking with other people. Start with your own family first. If someone needs help, look in the closest circle to you. Don't look beyond. You only look beyond if it's a, you know, a collective duty to look beyond, and so on and so forth. These become principles. And so if we apply these to the knowledge I acquire, this means that I have to understand the environment I live in, what does it look like, what are my imperatives, before I try to understand you know, history or geopolitics of the other way across the world. What am I living through right now? Right? So... If you understand these principles, they apply collectively and individually to us. So, and therefore, this is the knowledge you have to gain, and you have to see if no one else is doing, it becomes an automatic duty to do. If there is someone else doing, then maybe you can take your time and gain more competence and more qualification and do it better. But if there's not, then that's it. You roll up your sleeves and you start acting, right? Because it becomes wajib kifai, wajib uh, collective wajib, wa uh, wa obligation at the collective level. You can't just rely on someone else. No one is stepping up. You have to force something to happen. A and so on and so forth. These become principles, inshallah, we'll go through some of them. But it's only when we apply it to very specific fields, which I wasn't planning on doing in this series, but I think we're going to see enough of the general principles. So it becomes applications of those. But each one of those, and later in the in the in the series, inshallah, the idea is to go, for instance, from the individual to society. That's how this series is built. So if that's the case, it means that I have to spend a lot more time, and we're going to see that, inshallah, next week, in the hadith, one hadith from Imam Ali, alayhi salam. I have to spend a lot more time working on myself. The more I work on myself, the more this automatically prepares me to whatever is coming you know, in terms of social work or collective work or social presence, work on yourself. 
And so what does that mean? Like there's all the dimensions. There's a a, a, a creed or theological dimension. There's a, a akhlaqi and, and spiritual discipline dimension. There's a The more you work on those, the more this is readying you for what's going to happen later. And that's why we're, we're starting from the self and going towards, therefore, then what? Well, then the couple, then the family, then your extended family, then your immediate neighbors, then your community, then you start moving towards society. And this is why sometimes, you know, as interesting as it is, sometimes it's important and sometimes it's even necessary to start talking about, you know, what's the political theory in Islam and what's the economic theory in Islam and beautiful. We're not there yet. <laughs> We're still at the individual and maybe family level. We, we still need to nail all of that down so that when we talk, we, we put the ingredients in place so that we can talk about a Islamic theory of economics at a societal level. If you don't have the ingredients that makes up a society, why are we talking about a, a theory at a, at a macro level when all the ingredients are not even there? Right, So we can talk about it. It's important to understand its general principles, especially in today's world. But at a practical level, it's more from the individual, basically equipping the individual with everything they need, one step at a time, and then growing the concentric circle from within, from whatever is closest, and building next layer, the layer after that, the layer after that. Our whole, whole religion and religious teachings are built on these principles. So inshallah, we'll... We'll cover them, and I'll try to keep in mind the questions, including the how do we know like that you've achieved the threshold. I, I don't, I don't have an answer to it now, but uh, inshallah, we'll we'll try to come up with the with a way to to answer it if possible. Inshallah. Allah